2: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just got off the Skype phone with Mike Osborne to talk about his new book, The Emergence of Tropical Medicine in France. This came out in 2014 with the University of Chicago Press. Now, despite the seeming coherence of France as a place in the title, what the book does is actually introduce us to the centrality of place and places in the history of medicine by taking this notion of France or, or French colonial medicine and really exploding it to show us at very different um, levels of approach, at very different ways of zooming in, the kinds of places that are made by naval and colonial medicine in this period and the ways that naval and colonial medicine are shaped by places. And those are places including, you know, France and the colonies, their towns Individual cities and places like prisons and ships. And so you'll hear all about that in the conversation to come. This is a book um, that is of interest if you imagine yourself as somebody who really likes to read about history of medicine or history of France or the history of and with place and or um, if you just like a really good story, and you'll hear some of those stories and some of the character sketches um, that come up in the book just in just a few moments. So I hope you have a chance to read the book. It's really fascinating. And I think it makes a number of really significant contributions to the historiography of medicine and of colonial medicine in particular. And I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks for listening. I'm here today to talk with Michael Osborne about his new book, The Emergence of Tropical Medicine in France. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Mike, and thanks for making time to talk with me today. I love the book, and I am super excited to talk with you about it, so thank you for being here and welcome. So, Mike, could you start us off um, by saying just kind of a little bit about what brought you to the field of the history of science, and specifically, how did you come to decide to work on France um, in particular? within the history of science?
0: Well, um, one of the decisions that we all make if you uh, when we I I guess want to be a professor or at least get a PhD is uh, a topic of study and uh, there was a time in my life when I thought well I'll I'll do American history but in fact uh, I thought why should I spend time in New Jersey looking at archives when maybe I could go to someplace exotic. And uh, and for me, that, w- that was France. Um, the other thing that happened uh, was uh, as an undergraduate, I became extremely interested in science and politics. I, I read biology and political science as an undergraduate and always retained that interest in the politics of science. And uh, finally, before I went to graduate school, uh, I just picked up after working uh, for about six months and, and moved to France and just threw myself in, into uh, language acquisition, um, later went back to the Sorbonne and other places. Uh, so, but France was a specific choice of mine in terms of something to study. Uh, I could cite, for example, uh, Peasants into Frenchmen, uh, which is a fabulous book on logics of localism, uh, a number of years ago, and I, I was just enthralled with that. So I was pointed toward France as an undergraduate, uh, but without any French language skills. I subsequently moved to France and, and gained those skills. Uh, so when I went to graduate school, I uh, continued in, the, in that vein. Uh, the person I studied with was also a European historian, and he had written a couple of books on, on France. So uh, So that's how I got to where I am. Great.
2: So the book that we're here to talk about today is a history of French colonial medicine, which was largely in this story, or or a big part of that in this story um, was naval medicine in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Can you situate this within your larger research trajectory? How did you come to focus on this particular topic and also to to write a book-length object about this particular topic?
0: (sighs) Well, I was quite enamored of of French culture and, and thought that I knew it after visiting Paris and, and also going to school there. Uh, it's been a few years, so I was able to attend lectures by Michel Foucault uh, on my first trip to France. And subsequently, after hearing lectures there in, in, in Paris, I, I moved to uh, Grenoble and some other uh, places in the provinces and, and just thought, my goodness, this is very different. Uh, people will cut you a break uh, here in the south of France uh, when I was in Toulon and other places. If you don't speak uh, perfect English, and, and I began to hear that, you know, a lot of, for a lot of people, French is really, even today or then in the 1980s, not their first language, okay? They they spoke Provençal or Breton at, at home, or, or they, they knew both. So um, this topic of French naval medicine uh, intrigued me while I was working uh, on my first book. And I just kind of put it away. The, the The object of the first book was to show that the acquisition of empire, in fact, had an effect on science at the core of empire, which at that time I was thinking, well, it, it's Paris, right? That's the capital. But we'll say French science. Um, the arguments of that time, um, that early historiography had basically, uh, some people had argued that, no, 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 uh, acquisition of empire didn't do anything for science. But it, it seemed to me that there were a couple easy ways to trace that out. One was um, to look at zoos, which I did in the first book. And of course, there's a lot of exotic animals uh, in Paris and all over France coming in from around the world secondly in terms of what we call exotic peoples and diseases and and that is where I shifted then to look at what was happening in the provinces and particularly the port cities Uh, and and so it turned out that in terms of learned institutions particularly in uh, Toulon which is the major French port Uh, on the Mediterranean, naval port, but also in Bordeaux and some of the other cities, Brest, uh, on the Atlantic seaboard that I looked at, the Navy was vastly more important, vastly more important uh, than many other sorts of uh, cultural and industrial uh, uh, concerns and institutions. So with that in mind, I said, well, I should look at the Navy. Uh, Initially, I had thought that, I should look at the army, and I, I played with that for a while. But there's been a lot of things written about the, the French army and the, and also French army positions. And, and in some ways, that's correct, because the army was a very important um, cultural institution for France, particularly after Napoleon, because it's the army that where uh, most of the uh, military battles uh, take place. So... Uh, it's interesting to see now that the today if we could just reflect on this topic that the army has in fact incorporated naval medicine and what i tried to do in this book was to show that look there were separate trajectories multiple trajectories uh... important things happening in the provinces so in many ways it is a tour of the uh, coastal areas of france particularly the five naval ports uh, of Rochefort, Brest, Toulon, Lorient, and Cherbourg. One of the reasons that I I did this book was that I think the historiography of uh, the history of French medicine is still extremely Paris-centered, and there there are good reasons for that. But I I was trying to destabilize that narrative um, and also just have uh, a wonderful time visiting these places in the provinces.
2: Thank you so much. So you've already said a little bit about some of, um, at least what I took to be some of the most important broader historiographical contributions that the book is making. So in addition to focusing on naval medicine, which brings us to a different set of places, um, right, or spaces than we ordinarily might focus on in histories of colonial medicine, and we'll talk a little bit about those places in a moment, um, focusing on naval medicine also really changes how, we understand what the, what the history of colonial medicine looks like in this period. So um, in addition to, again, the focus on naval medicine, can you talk a little bit about, as we now move into the book, what are some of the other ways that the work you're doing here is revising the kind of larger picture that we have of the history of colonial medicine in this period?
0: Well, for example... Uh, Most French uh, physicians who serve overseas in the 20th century are trained in Marseille, or at least uh, they have what we'd call postgraduate training, um, either in Marseille, most often in Marseille, but also uh, in Toulon. So on the Mediterranean seaboard, one of the things uh, that tropical medicine, I think, which, which generally, tropical medicine is a marker that comes about, you could say, in that, in that decade before World War One, and it's based on parasitology, medical parasitology. Uh, we have the discovery, uh, of course, of the um, parasitic uh, nature of diseases like like malaria. Um, and I think one of the things that, that I tried to uh, do in the book, and I, and I hope it's successful, is to Um, tell a counter-narrative. That is, the standard narrative is that we've got the uh, Pasteur Institute, and we've got Pasteur, and we've got these uh, diseases that he's able uh, to work out. I mean, anthrax, for example, but several other sorts of of diseases that um, he works with. And uh, production of of vaccines, but to take a look at the people that actually served overseas, sometimes for for many years, or in one instance in my book, a person who who took nineteen voyages and colonial postings over a career. To look at the training of those people, um, and they were turns out that they were not quite as, as modern as one would think. It, when you think of uh, Pasteur and his science, it it, it is uh, very new, but these people, um, around 1900 or so, these people are trying to engage with that new way of looking at diseases and peoples, uh, and yet stay firm uh, or steadfast to certain traditions, of which Things like medical geography, for example, were extremely important for uh, naval and beyond that, military physicians. In other words, localization of diseases. It's not um, unlike uh, what we're seeing now with this. Uh, unfortunate Ebola outbreak. That is to say that we need to look at uh, contacts of people, we need to look at the local context, Uh, suppression of diseases in a place like uh, Saint Louis in Senegal where one of the uh, major uh, yellow fever Uh, outbreaks that we've seen on the face of the globe happen in the 1860s is not as easy in terms of suppressing a disease or as you might find, uh, say, in in France proper, particularly in Paris. So the the medical police element is less disciplined. Um, This stands in contrast, I think, to what you find on ships, where in many ways the The medical policing, the hygiene, and the sanitation is very disciplined. Uh, And I think there's a difference in status of patients. There's a lot of elements there. But uh, naval medicine had another sort of worry, or or I should say another uh, vector that that distinguishes it, I think, from civilian medicine. Um, And uh, one of the things that the naval physicians are very worried about is being incorporated into the Army. And, in fact, that has now happened. Uh, You won't find any of these institutions that that I wrote about training naval physicians that are still on the coast. Um, That uh, happened just recently. Um, So incorporation into the Army um, is one of the things that I I wrote about. Linked with that is a series or... Uh, Of pleas actually, that or or statements or arguments about why naval medicine is special and therefore we need these special schools. Um, So, the ranking system in the Army and the Navy is a bit different. Um, uh, Secondarily, though, in terms of civilian medicine, which is in many ways um, what we know the most about and particularly. Uh, people that were trained at the Paris Faculty of Medicine. In terms of the panorama of uh, history of medicine in France in the 19th and 20th century, one of the things that distinguishes, I think, Navy medicine from civilian medicine is that the people that are practicing civilian medicine, certainly in the 20th century, they have MD degrees. And many of the people that I wrote about, although it's changing uh, by the mid- 20th century, or it has changed, I should say, by the early 20th century, uh, never attained the MD degree. They're surgeons. They are what we would call, say, health officers. They have like two years of training, um, and the training often is very much on a pre- uh, apprenticeship model, not necessarily in the clinic, but on ships. So there's a, a distinctiveness, I think, of naval medicine that I, that I tried to bring out Uh, at various places in the book.
2: Great. Thank you so much. And um, I think along these lines, this brings us to another really crucial element of the book's argument, and that is the importance of place. So in several different ways, the book really revises not just our notion of the importance of place in colonial medicine, but really the kinds of places that matter. So rather than focusing on colonial medicine in the context that a lot of other studies do, um, which is the British Empire and mostly India and sort of projecting this kind of pan-European model. On one level, the book focuses refocuses our attention on place by focusing on France, not Britain, and, and not proposing a pan-European model. On another level, it focuses, again, as you already suggested, not on Paris, but on different localities in France to sort of take us into the, the plurality and the texture of places within France. And then on, anu- on yet another level, perhaps a third um, level places manifest, you also bring us into kinds of places like prisons and ships and ports, which are also really crucial to shaping colonial medicine in this context and naval medicine in particular, um, and sort of helping us, I think, integrate this case within a larger um, understanding of colonial medicine writ large um, and its historiography in this period. So the first chapter really sets the stage by introducing three of the port cities, three of the naval ports that are going to become really important to the book. One is Brest, um, one is Rochefort-sur-Mer, and one is Toulon. And I apologize in advance for my pronunciation of everything. Um, So you you take us in this first chapter into these places and talk about the differences among them and then the kind of particularities of what it would have been like to live in these places. And you talk here about the differences between naval and civilian healing, um, much along the lines that you just um, spoke with us about in your description of the particularities of naval medicine. Now, one of the really interesting things that comes out of this chapter is a movement into looking at prisons, as spaces of naval medicine and colonial medicine and looking at the ways that, in particular, prisons become these sites for working out ideas of race and forensics and criminal psychology. So to take us into this first part of the book, um, would you talk a little bit about the importance of prisons as places for your story?
0: I'd be delighted to. So just to recap, uh, as you mentioned the, the three major cities where uh, uh, there were prisons um, and those are naval prisons which are a certain kind of prison a bang prison for example are um, Rochefort-sur-Mer, Brest and Toulon. Uh, Toulon's bang system uh, lasted long longer than the other two uh, and it was also the biggest one so for example in the 1870s, uh, after the Paris Commune, which was uh, um, a uh, the Paris Commune was uh, were a group of uh, socialists and and others that were suppressed. Many were murdered, but also some uh, in 1870, seventy one or so, uh, right when uh, the Second Empire falls and France changes governments to the Third Republic. Uh, The Bang prison uh, at Toulon, in fact, received some of these uh, prisoners from this uh, insurrection who are then uh, shipped to the French colonies. Um, One of the things with the Bangs uh, is that uh, increasingly by the time we get to the 19th century, they are seen, and we're talking here about several thousand men, uh, we, i give some figures in the book, but several thousand men, sometimes women, who are basically in a work camp. Now, that means that they might be working at the naval arsenals that are in all three of those cities, a very hard, break, uh, back-breaking labor, or they might be farmed out and in the community. But basically, for the men, they sleep on racks um, at the prison at night, and they're chained together. Um, uh, well, they're chained. They're chained, and some of the ideas that I talked about there, in terms of the specificity of this kind of prison life, was that it's it's very different from uh, the sort of stuff that um, Michel Foucault wrote about in terms of prisons. Uh, it's not as a disciplined a place as I think uh, Michel Foucault's visions of prisons were. Uh, there's not much in terms of redemptive value, which. Foucault had claimed that civilian prisons had at this time. Uh, not much that I can see uh, at least happening um, uh, at these various banks. In terms of naval medicine, this is where most of those colonial physicians cut their teeth in terms of looking at ideas of race uh, and also at, in terms of epidemiology. So as a medical student uh, in the French Navy, uh, at one of these three point uh, ports, excuse me, you would be expected <coughs> pardon me uh, to work uh, inter- at prison a- at one of these prisons for say evening shift or something, and you would also have a specific class in prison medicine and so that 's again another additional point of specificity uh, for uh, naval medicine. now, the other thing about the Navy, but also these prisons, uh, that is intriguing for historians, is they have very good records, uh, particularly medical records uh, that were kept. So, one of the things I talk about in chapter one was um, an alleged homosexual affair that happens in Toulon, and unfortunately, uh, one of the people uh, is murdered, and there's an investigation of that by uh, a surgeon who is there. Um, Another thing in terms of race, though uh, is that it 's noted within these prisons uh, that certain prisoners with certain kind ethnicities, and the categories here are, are extremely broad, such as arabs uh, <laughs> or um, africans or or Jews or uh, sometimes you get down to the French regional level of brestois someone uh, uh, someone from Brest or Rochefortes, something like that. But what they start noticing is that, for example, the Arab uh, prisoners, as they call them, uh, are able to sustain certain things, uh, uh, diseases like cholera, but not so much, uh, for example, uh, typhus. <clears throat> and so um, they start noting that that certain ethnicities um, seem to be susceptible to certain diseases. Um, This sort of accounting, uh, which I I talk about in in the book, uh, is extremely important, particularly when this uh, technique or this reconnaissance uh, happens on various ships for the Navy. So, for example, uh, when the Navy is dealing with really an epidemic of lead poisoning in the middle of the 19th century, it's noticed that... Um, The Africans, who just happen to be of the Islamic faith, are not drinking water from the cisterns, um, and they're not suffering from what's called dry colic. We would call it lead poisoning now. And so race was extremely fundamental to uh, looking at a number of diseases, and uh, there's many – physicians then who incorporate that in their M.D. thesis in the Navy, those at least that go on to get uh, an M.D.
2: Race race actually continues to be important um, throughout the story and as we get into chapter two and three chapter two specifically takes us into uh, a a really detailed study of this case of lead poisoning, which is related to um, a disease called dry colic Um, in, in using this case study to look more broadly. And I mention this for listeners um, who are particularly interested in ideas of the laboratory more broadly at the idea of the ship as a space. And the ship is a laboratory space that's used to work out ideas of place, ideas of, um, in the case of this lead poisoning slash dry colic, industrial health and technological modernity. So there's a really interesting chapter on the ship. As a place in these contexts, um, and that's chapter two. And as we get to chapter three, um, we get into a really fascinating opening up of these ideas of race and ways of understanding, and really the pluralities um, that are involved in understanding ideas of race, along the lines that you just mentioned. So I think maybe it's a, a good time to turn there. Chapter three raises, yeah. So chapter three raises a number of different ways that the people that you're studying thought about and conceptualized race. And in many ways, these are quite different from what readers or listeners um, may have assumed coming into the book. So I think it's, it's worth talking a little bit about. Now, one of these ways of thinking about race that comes up that's quite different um, from what I had read about previously and was really wonderfully surprising to me were these notions of internal and external race um, as they manifest here. So can you say a little bit about that? What's going on with internal and external race, and why is this important to the larger argument that you're making in this part of the book?
0: I wanted to uh, show how uh, ideas of race, or possibly we could say ethnicity, it's they're hard terms to, to nail down, but um, ideas of race, we'll just say, uh, sometimes <coughs> linked with geography, sometimes linked with diet, sometimes linked with stature often linked with the uh, craniometric studies, um, but how ideas of the, what I call the races of France, um, factor into uh, naval staffing decisions. So the internal dimensions of, of race then would be looking at the various um, ethnicities of France. So um, we could say that uh, there are Basque peoples living in uh, uh, southwestern France, um, and the navy uh, wrote about them and the appropriate sorts of careers uh, that uh, that they might have in the navy, which uh, uh, tend to be something like a, a lookout, uh, <clears throat> but also someone who is very good at, at um, climbing rigging, uh, very athletic, but but small. Uh, uh, Conversely, or uh, additionally, I guess I should say, um, there are other sorts of ethnicities as well, like the Norman race um, and also the um, Provençal race to the south. Um, and the Navy, in their staffing decisions, their manuals of hygiene, in fact, the official one, the, the main one that I write about, they basically say, well, these ethnicities um, have uh, – certain kinds of necessities of diet um they have certain habits of cleanliness they have certain proclivities we should say human uh a diversity of human skills the navy needs all of them but uh, uh, norman people for example they could be trusted with say uh uh long voyages particularly to the north seas um they can handle that sort of thing but they tend to uh drink a lot so you shouldn't uh Uh, you should not, for example, uh, uh, charge them with something like navigation or (laughs) steering ship. Secondarily, though, if we could just contrast that for a moment with the Provençal, as they say, race. Uh, But again, the people that um, came into the Navy from, we'll say, uh, the Marseille or or Toulon area down in the Mediterranean, that they're regarded as being uh, quite sober, uh, but they have a bad temper. So they have um, certain sorts of, of voyages uh, that they seem to be, at least the naval physicians think they're appropriate for, and also certain tasks. So that was, uh, in a nutshell, I think, what I was looking at in terms of internal racism as the races of France, staffing decisions. And they're made on what we would say, uh, the staffing decisions, as far as I can tell, some of them were made uh, on this um, this sort of categorization of, of ethnicities. External racism, I would define uh, as, and this is the French nation and also many of the French naval physicians that I wrote about, uh, looking outward, particularly uh, to Africa, in terms of the um, uh, racial, uh, well, in, in terms of staffing decisions, again, for uh, the French Navy and the proclivities of, of Africans, uh, not only in uh, colonial ports, uh, say in Senegal, for example, uh, but also in terms of staffing on ships. So you would find, for example, depending on the naval ship, um, people that were tending uh, the boilers or the or uh, the coal, uh, the, the stokers. I guess we would call them on ship, and they tend to be uh, uh, the majority of them tended to be African that would sign on with the French Navy uh, for a while. Uh, and so, um, again, I think if, in looking at the ecology of the ship, it, uh, there is, uh, in the ecology of staffing, the French positions were, were using uh, racial ideas, both internally to look at the races of France and place them appropriately, and also externally, uh, in terms of uh, the colonial dominions of France.
2: Great. So this chapter, um, in sort of exploring this, it's going to argue for, again, revisions in how we understand um, the history of race and and racial ideas in this context, alongside arguing that French naval and colonial physicians were far more pluralist and less essentialist in their racial thinking than has been previously portrayed. This chapter is also arguing that race here is not straightforwardly a biological category, and again brings out the importance of notions of um, space and place and culture to racial concepts. Now, one of the other um, really interesting case studies that comes up in this chapter leads us into um, a, a chance to introduce one of the more interesting figures in this part of the book. So the chapter looks at the case study of yellow fever and calls yellow fever a signature disease of colonial medicine. Now, this is also a case study um, that various actors in your story are using to work out notions of race, and one of those actors is a doctor named Laurent Jean-Baptiste Berenger-Ferreau. So, he's working on yellow fever in this chapter. He also winds up being a key figure in the next chapter, um, and he winds up being uh, involved in reform in this period. So to, to lead us um, forward in the story and bring us into what's happening in Chapter 4 um, in particular, could you introduce um, Berenger-Ferrault for us? Uh, what was interesting about him? What's crucial for us to understand in order to understand the work he's doing in the story? And um, yeah, if you could just give us a, a kind of a portrait of him and talk about his importance.
0: Thanks. Well, uh, one of the things... That I used yellow fever for throughout the book was, uh, as I said, a signature disease of colonialism. Is that, of course, with yellow fever, there is, uh, as far as we can tell, we moderns, um, a differential mortality and morbidity uh, sort of a vector there between. For example, Africans, particularly if they've been, or, or Caribbean peoples who've been uh, exposed to yellow fever, and <clears throat> people from, from northern Europe. And Berger-Ferot uh, was, as far as we can tell, uh, someone who was an illegitimate uh, son uh, uh, in, uh, from Toulon, and who uh, rises to... Uh, nearly rises to the very top of the naval medical hierarchy. Um, he has a lifelong engagement with uh, yellow fever, but also other sorts of uh, epidemics throughout the empire. One, for example, is in uh, West Africa, uh, at uh, San Louis in Senegal, what becomes Senegal. Also, uh, he encounters yellow fever um, in the American Caribbean. He is there uh, uh, working for a number of years, and he writes uh, voluminous volumes about this. He was a man who never married. Uh, He was a person who changed his name a number of times, possibly because he was worried about his uh, illegitimacy. Uh, But he chooses the Navy as a career. And uh, he is a surgeon who wins an MD uh, degree, uh, and he is a person too who survives and takes as many as nineteen postings on ship or um, overseas. So, and he's he's wounded in the uh, uh, <clears throat> Franco-Prussian War. Uh, he most certainly contracted malaria and survived that we 're not sure about yellow fever uh, that 's one of the things I was able to do. I imagine how wonderful the naval records are uh, get into the uh, health reports of the physicians themselves, so they have a, uh, not only um, mental and behavioral attachments to place. Uh, the place attaches to them in terms of the disease that they diseases I should say um, that they contracted. Bernier Farreau, who after several postings um, comes back to Toulon um, as the highest ranking medical officer in the port. Uh, and this is in uh, the um, uh, late 19th century. And logically, he should be uh, the person who is chair of what we'll call the Port Medical Council, which runs all the medicine, uh, all, all the naval medicine, I should say, which is uh, 90% of it, uh, in the port of Toulon. The only black mark on his record is that he has never been a professor at one of the three naval medical schools, and it has been traditional uh, at the time he achieves the apogee of his career for uh, the person who chairs the port medical council to be um, a, a professor at one of the naval medical schools, and he isn't. This precipitates a crisis in the Navy. And as the upshot of that, um, three book bombs are posted to a people in Paris who, uh, they're not just people, uh, but they're people who are involved in the reform of naval medicine, uh, which basically pulls... Um, uh from the grasp of Berenger Farreau uh the um, highest uh, his ability i should say to um, to run in fact uh not only naval medicine in the port of Toulon but uh the entire panorama of, of French medicine so uh what happens uh is uh, book bombs arrive in in, uh, in Paris one is at uh the home of uh, the new um, army slash civilian, um, uh, colonial, uh, medicine unit, which starts up at the, uh, not just unit, but organization that starts up and, uh, and, and will be, uh, placed in actually Marseille, the Ferrell hospital for training the new tier of French colonial physicians. Uh, and one of the people who starts that, uh, uh, in, in Paris, receives a book bomb. the, a minister also receives a book bomb, um, and then there's a third person. The bombs do not go off, but it's determined that they were posted from Toulon, and, in fact, um, it's known that uh, some of the recipients of these bombs have certain kind of medical diseases, and the books, um, which contain fulminate of mercury, for example, and, and uh, blasting well, uh, caps from um, uh, rifle ammo and whatnot— um, The book bombs don't go off, but the books uh, that enclosed them uh, were specifically targeted at these three people. So the implication, according to the police, was that whoever did this knew these people in very intimate detail. So, for example, one of the people had served as a representative in the French government from Algeria, which is known as a place of syphilis, and he gets uh, a book on venereal disease. Another person who was known to have, uh, of these three who received the bombs, was known to have intestinal complaints, um, and uh, he receives a book uh, about intestinal complaints. So, the French National Police and the Navy itself, subsequently, Um, goes down uh, to Toulon where the books were posted from and they interview Berger-Ferrault. Now Berger-Ferrault had been involved for a number of years in championing um, those who sailed on ship over the privileged professors who taught in the naval uh, port schools. Um, This was not as it is uh, today where you rotate through being a professor in one of the naval or army medical schools, and then you go out into the field. These were people that that took a post uh, on land and just uh, stayed there for the rest of their careers. So, and in terms of advancement um, to higher ranks, you needed to have been a uh, professor. So Belanger-Ferot had portrayed himself as the voice of what's called the Navigon, the people that the surgeons in particular that uh, sail on ship, uh, this sort of uh, incident is, is brought to the... Uh, the book bomb, book bomb incident then brings these uh, sorts of issues to the fore, and what happens is that naval medicine is reformed, and a, a new centralized medical school uh, is built at Bordeaux. In terms of Belanger Faro, he was also one of the people who uh, has been portrayed in the historiography as someone who is an essentialist sort of a um, racialist or a or, uh, person promoting essentialist race theories. Um, but, in fact, what I showed in terms of uh, immunity or partial immunity to yellow fever, uh, some of his ideas uh, about what constitutes uh, Uh, the provincial race, but also the races of of Africans and Caribbean peoples. Um, He is very pluralistic in terms of uh, sorts of things. When he talks about the ethnic selectivity, for example, of yellow fever, Uh, and he's very pluralistic uh, in terms of looking at these races, races can change. This does not seem to be um, fixed. In other words, uh, these... Various people that he's looking at, he's saying that you know they're not just an expression of some of <clears throat> their anthropological makeup. There are some other things happening here. Um, so <clears throat> basically, then in looking at yellow fever uh, and also at again the ethnicities of the people of Provence, for example, which uh... writes about, I tried to take a look at uh, what I think, is a counter-narrative in terms of the acceptance of an anthropological uh, essentialist uh, idea of the races of humankind as being uh, fairly fixed, if not uh, the characteristics fixed, over the long 19th century.
2: Fantastic. Thank you so much. And, and as we move from the chapter that really takes us into the story of these reforms, um, as you've just mentioned, then we move into two chapters of the book. And these are um, before the conclusion, of the last two chapters of the book that look at the new civilian and army colonial medicine that emerges after the demise of the port medical school system that got dismantled as a result of the reforms in chapter four. So chapter Chapter 5 focuses on Marseille and on the key institutions of colonial science and medicine in Marseille. Since part of the argument of the book and part of the real, I think, um, one of the many important contributions of the book is to take us into some of the places of medicine, again, and to to look at their particularities here, let's look a little bit at Marseille. Can you talk a little bit about what was particular about Marseille as a place in this period, and how does this that particularity shape the story of colonial medicine that emerges in this part of the book? Well,
0: in 1905, after these uh, series of reforms, the army opens um, the pharaoh, that's P-H-A-R-O, but uh, basically a a postgraduate medical school for physicians bound to the colonies. The reason that, uh, there are many reasons why, uh, this postgraduate medical school uh, is located uh, in Marseille, but one of the major ones, if not the major one, is that Marseille has more people that are suffering from what are typed as tropical diseases uh, than any other any other city in France. And so, if you want to train physicians who have at least seen someone who has malaria or yellow fever or the ulcer of Indochina, uh, or these other sorts of diseases, um, there are a lot of people that suffer from this in Marseille, so that's, that's one of the reasons. Uh, secondly, there was a, a panorama of colonial institutions in Marseille, so if you were going to, for example, cite uh, a new school for training uh, colonial medicine uh, physicians excuse me, in Marseille, Marseille, had many backup institutions. So for example, uh one of the things that has is a huge colonial museum, a commercial museum, and in particular, they have a chamber of commerce that has dealt since the 17th century with the Levant, so the um, Eastern uh, Mediterranean and, and Eurasia and beyond. Uh, and they also have people who care about and fund colonial medicine. The people would include people, uh, sorry, uh, owners of uh, shipping uh, companies. So they're um, not unlike what we saw uh, for colonial medicine in the United Kingdom, particularly at Liverpool. The shipping interests care about colonial diseases. Uh, things like yellow fever, one of the reasons it's a signature disease is that it dis- disrupts commerce, uh, as Mario Espinoza uh, uh, wrote about in her very fine book on Yale fever in Cuba. I mean, it's fundamental to health reform, um, in, in many ways. Uh, second, uh, thirdly, uh, there is a faculty of sciences, but not a full faculty of medicine in Marseille. And the people, I should say the scientists in Marseille are very, very interested to have a full faculty of medicine. And in fact, uh, they finally get one. It's not until the 20th century, but they are extremely supportive then of having uh, colonial physicians, uh, uh, training of colonial physicians, physicians who would know something about the diseases of the empire uh, in in Marseille. Uh, in the book, I uh, the uh, the last thing I'll just say, I think, in terms of the colonial context of Marseille, uh, is that outside of Paris it's Marseille that hosts uh, the largest of all colonial expositions in France in terms of visitors they they hold one in 1922 uh, right after uh, World War one but uh, in 1906 Marseille also hosts Um, a colonial exposition that had uh, uh, 1,800,000 visitors for example and so there is a a vast interest throughout the community uh, of Marseille in things colonial and part of it is that the industries of Marseille, such as we think of soap manufacture, for example, um, they're switching over from using pressed olive oil, although they're still doing some of that, to crops that uh, are uh, palm oils, for example, crops that are and uh, feedstuffs that are grown in the French colonies. So there's a whole panorama of people and institutions who really care about the colonies uh, in Marseille.
2: Great. Thank you so much. And and just for um, listeners who are particularly interested in the history of plants and animals and commodities in this context, we won't have time to talk about this in any detail, but I'll just signal for them that part of this chapter looks at um, a figure, Edouard Heckel, who has an institute colonial and a museum, or musée colonial, where he studies and promotes products derived from colonial flora and fauna. And so, Part of this chapter looks at his work at this 1906 exposition and also looks at his effort um, to promote, to use, to study, kola nuts in particular. So there's a really interesting um, sort of historical case study on cola nuts um, in this chapter which is I think particularly fascinating for those interested in the histories of um, commodities and materia medica and foodstuffs and that, that sort of stuff so as we move um, from Chapter 5 to Chapter 6, we move from Marseille to Paris. And Chapter 6 looks particularly at the founding of the Paris Faculty of Medicine's Institute of Colonial Medicine. So here, this is not just a shift for us to Paris, it's also in many ways a shift in the kind of style of and, and the mm-hmm. scope of um, colonial medicine and a move to a new kind of universal tropical medicine. This is an important um, point in the story. To maybe mirror our um, discussion of the previous chapter, since we're moving from one place to another, and, and that move is really important, what do we need to understand about Paris as a place in this period in order to understand some of the some of the important ways that it differed, and differed specifically in terms of what you're arguing here from the kinds of places that we've discuss it, discussed. So, um, put briefly, what? Um, What's special about Paris and what do we need to know about Paris as a place to understand um, how it's functioning in the argument that you're making in this part of the book?
0: Uh, Chapter six uh, does, in fact, look at the Paris faculty of medicine. I think most of what we know or we knew about Colonial medicine in Paris was uh, uh, the Pasteur Institute, and there are Pasteur overseas Pasteur institutes. And I talked briefly about that. But there's also, in terms of training uh, colonial physicians, and again, it's a postgraduate school uh, that is 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 comes together there um, at the end of the 19th and early 20th century. Uh, is at the Paris Faculty of Medicine. Well, I think what we need to know about the place of Paris. Um, is that it is one of the most populous cities in Europe even at the end of the 19th century. Um, Secondarily, in terms of training French physicians, if we could just step back and look at the number of physicians, those are people that win MDs that are trained uh, in the 19th century. The vast majority are trained at the Paris Faculty of Medicine as opposed to other faculties that are in the provinces. Uh, So in terms of colonial medicine, what I tried to do was talk about um, or, or show how um, a medical parasitologist by the name of Raphael Blanchard, who becomes a professor of um, parasitology at Paris uh, Faculty of Medicine, uses the colonies to further his own career. So that's, that's the trajectory uh, by using the colonies. Um, Again, this is a person who set up colonial networks. He had naval physicians who sent him bugs in matchboxes, uh, sometimes preserved, sometimes not. He's a person who brought three people suffering from sleeping sickness to Paris, uh, which, as far as I can tell, uh, was the first time that had ever happened. Uh, To study that... uh, the, um, the three Africans who unfortunately all, all died in Paris, but it was pretty much um, a death sentence if you had uh, something like uh, uh, the trypanosome that causes sleeping sickness uh, for all of the 19th century and for much uh, of the 20th. So what I tried to show is how uh, Blanchard, uh, through what he taught, through his organization, organizational skills, and through his uh, editing of journals, how he enfranchised uh, colonial knowledge and how he he brought that to the table, even though he is a person who in many ways steps away from the traditions of uh, medical geography, is very focused on what we historians of medicine would call uh, etiology and on microscopy, uh, how he incorporates then colonial knowledge into this newer, form of colonial medicine.
2: Great. So in addition to this move, um, or at least part of this move that I mentioned earlier from a port-based local and regional naval and colonial medicine, which is what we saw in in most of the book, to this new regime of a universal tropical medicine, is a move um, by the end of this story from what you call localism to centralization since this is a significant move as a way of kind of bringing us out um out of the story can you talk a little bit about the significance of this transition what's going on here and what do we need to understand about this larger move from localism to centralization in this context
0: well, one of the things that <clears throat> is happening with this transition is that the uh, Port Naval Medical Schools uh, in Rochefort, Brest, and Toulon are are downsized to just be basically schools that um, give you the first year of of a medical training, and then you would go to um, a medical faculty or to Bordeaux. So, one of the things that is happening there is that the, in many ways, the, the sort of localism that I talked about, gets left left behind. Uh, so in terms of the traditions of naval medicine, and particularly encountering or taking a whole class, for example, in medical geography at a naval medical school, um, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't get that sort of thing in, in Paris. You might get some of it, but you wouldn't get uh, as much there. Uh, the newer empire, too, uh, will be based not so much... On the idea that the French will be settlers and we will have French settlement colonies, but that we will have a few French agents hopefully vaccinated or or safe from things like malaria and yellow fever, who will go organize uh, workers in the colonies. Uh, Now, in terms of older ideas about uh, empire and colonialism, um, there's a much more intimate, I think, engagement with the terrain. Of the colonies, um, and the naval physicians were engaged in that. With someone like Belanger Farrelle, and certainly his colleagues, they they do uh, want some colonial knowledge, and they certainly want samples for uh, their laboratory classes that they're they're teaching in terms of uh, this or that sort of, of vector can uh, uh, can cause you to go ill. But in fact, they're not very interested in the local context, at least not of the colonies, not in the way, certainly, that the naval positions were. Um, So the culmination, then, we go back to Paris. um, Recently, what's happened is that naval medicine and colonial medicine has moved to suburban Paris. And, in fact, that happened in uh, the summer of 2013 and also to the inland, which uh, Paris is actually quite a substantial port because it's got this... The Seine River moving through there. But secondarily, the rest of the institutions were moved to uh, Lyon, which, as far as I know, is not a naval port. It's just downhill there from Geneva in Switzerland.
2: Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Now, toward the end of the story, um, in the conclusion, you move us out. Into uh, the 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 more recent past, into this late uh, and last really part of the story, but you also move us out from the context of uh, history of medicine and disease and colonial medicine to start incorporate, or to start incorporating rather, figures that perhaps are better known um, from the history of art and the history of literature. And one of these figures who is super fascinating in this context is the last person I'll ask you about before we um, come to a close. And this is the figure of Victor Segalen or Segalen. Um, depending on whether you pronounce it like an, a New Jersey Italian-American like I do or somebody who knows what they're doing um, so Ken, as a way of kind of moving us out into this um, larger, really humanistic frame that you give us so beautifully um, in the last chapter of the book and in the conclusion can you talk a little bit about him um, What what is he doing in the story and um, what does this um, engagement with the arts have to do with it
0: well, one of the things that, that was so compelling about <coughs> this topic for me was that these physicians, these naval physicians, many of them were also writing novels. ben Faro was write, writing uh, local histories. Uh, some of his friends were writing about myths. Um, and if we might think of that painting that Picasso did in 1937 of the Minotaur, I think it's called, um, we see a landscape and then we see this, this god uh, appearing on the landscape of Provence, and and I was trying to un- uncover, I think, that sensibility, that attachment to place, and literature, uh, music, uh, language, uh, Provençal, for example, Occitan. These are these are ways of attachments to place, and in terms of Segalan, he is engaged in um, a critique of exoticism. He uh, Travels uh, after Gauguin's death, the painter, he he actually buys and incorporates some of uh, Gauguin's uh, paintings, uh, and and some other things. I think his his walking stick and Segolan, and you're you're correct in not knowing how to pronounce this because <laughs> Segolan changes changes his name uh, to uh, look more like he's. Uh, 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 than than French by by removing an accent and sometimes putting it in. But uh, basically, he is really the model, I think, for the newer engagement with the colonies, which is very questioning. In other words, is this a good thing? Is empire a good thing? Um, Worries about the French, uh, in fact, homogenizing the world, uh, which I didn't expect to find this uh, critique, really, of um, imperialism and colonialism from within the Navy. Uh, Segalin was a very interesting guy. I I portray him as um, uh, a hybrid figure uh, in this transition, uh, who subsequently becomes the namesake for the University of Bordeaux uh, III, which is the medical school in Bordeaux.
2: Well, Mike, thank you so much for making time to talk with me about this super fascinating book. Um, We've talked about a lot of moments from it, but of course there's a ton of material in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Is there anything in particular um, that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners?
0: Well, I hope my book will give... Uh, listeners uh, and those who who read it uh, a sense of the the places i won 't say place but places of france of uh, and, and maybe an affection uh, uh, for those places but also I think uh, um, help at least the book helped me to reconceptualize how how I think about place and then it 's not just something 's passive or or, or space laden but how it actually figures into things like um, diagnosis, ideas of disease, etiology, uh, actions, and how place can be enabling as well as uh, limiting. So I think if there's a take-home message from the book, uh, it's that one about how uh, we understand place and how really this is a plea to have place enfranchised uh, in history of science and medicine uh, in a way that perhaps it hasn't been done before.
2: Great. Well, congratulations on the book. And now that it's out, what's next for you? Are there any projects that are currently inspiring you?
0: I have two. Uh, One, I kept saying that after two books on on the tropics or the neotropics uh, or exotic animals, that I would work on um, uh, alpine environments, and I've started that. But the next one up for me is a biography of yellow fever, a short biography of yellow fever, a global history of it.
2: Great. Well, best of luck with those projects, Mike. Thanks again um, for making time. It really was a pleasure. Um, And best of luck with the new material.
0: Thanks, Carla. Nice to chat with you.
2: You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.
1: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?